Hi, and welcome to another edition of DevOps FM, the podcast that talks all things DevOps. I'm your host, Mickey Gousset, and with me is my co-host, Brian Randall. Each week, we work to bring you news, interviews, and discussions around DevOps topics that are relevant to you. Quick disclaimer, Brian and I are both GitHub employees, but all opinions, thoughts, and comments presented on this podcast are strictly our own and do not represent GitHub or any other entity in any official fashion. This week's topic, monitoring and application resiliency. But before we jump into the topic, let's catch up on our weeks. Brian, how has your week been? Mickey, my brother from another mother. Uh, it's been good. You know, I spent the week working for the man, considering this is our first full week in January. And, uh, you know, just trying to get into a good New Year's groove. How about you? Oh, no complaints. About the same way. Just trying to, been working a, a little bit of a odd week, because I haven't been working normal U.S. hours, but I've been working um, with a customer over in APAC. So I've been working evening hours this week, which kind of throws everything off. But, you know. We're getting there. We're getting there. But less about me right now and more about you. Well, I have to ask before we go further, you know, for the uninformed, what does APAC stand for? Asia, Pacific, and it's it's over there. It's Australia, Asia, India, that side of the world. Okay. We got to be careful with acronyms because, you know, people get confused. But in either case, yeah, um, you know, exercise has been a battle. Um I didn't close my rings every day, and I've been shamed by Mickey appropriately on um, our private text message with our buddy Ben. Uh, what's great, we did add another partner in crime, our good friend Martin Woodward from the UK. He's up in Northern Ireland, and he is quite the aggressive ring closer as well as exerciser. So uh, we're going to continue to work on that. And uh, you know, it turns out, Mickey, I get to do reflections as well at work. Last week, we talked about how you were having to do that. And it turns out, even though I've only been an employee for a couple of months, I get to do it too, just not as detailed. Ah, so you came in just under the wire enough on your hire date to where you have to do reflections. Yeah, so I'm still waiting to get a little more guidance from my manager. Um, but um, yeah, I'm... I'm like, I've been here a little while. I feel like I, you know, I spent more time on vacation, it feels like, than I did actually working because of the Christmas holiday and Thanksgiving. But I'm sure I've, I've done something that I can reflect on. You, you did spend more time on vacation than you did working. I can, I can attest to that. But that's okay, because that's just how the cookie crumbled at the time. But let's go back to the whole exercise thing for a second, Brian. What are you doing for exercise? Well, uh... We do uh, some aggressive walking, uh, often with the misses, and that's very helpful. And we've actually run into an interesting issue that maybe you, as a very smart physicist, can help me on. Um, we have noticed something interesting. So we live in suburbia, and we live in a housing development. And so we are walking, usually just on the sidewalk, which means, obviously, there's roads as well. And what will happen is you'll hit a break in the sidewalk because there is a place, for example, for cars to turn into a development, for example. And we have been increasingly getting annoyed because it seems no matter how fast or how slow we walk at what time of day, the minute we get to an intersection, people show up. 
and we either have to let them go or we have to hurry across while they wait for us. It's kind of like some. It's got to be something like string theory going on because it's just it drives drives us nuts. But I can, uh, yeah, so I can walking, understand that. I'm sorry. I can understand that. Yeah. So and then uh, the other thing is uh, the Peloton. Uh, got that over the pandemic, and uh, I've been embracing the pain that is the Peloton. Awesome. So for myself for exercise, I've been doing a combination of um, either an elliptical machine or walking on a very old treadmill. Um, I have not gotten myself back to the gym yet. I've got my membership, but I just have not, especially with me working the evenings the past week, have not gotten myself where I've gotten back into the gym side of things. Right now, I've been focused mostly on trying to make sure I hit my movement and close those rings on our Apple watches. And so I've been focusing more on doing the the cardio. So I'm probably going to start adding weights because you got to do a little bit of both if you really want to see some gains um probably in february but right now it's been mostly focused on on doing cardio and trying to do a little more high intensity cardio so not just oh i'm going to put netflix on and watch a show for 30 minutes while i casually move but instead i've been actually i've actually been putting on um container and kubernetes videos off of youtube and, and listening to those while I've been trying to move a little bit faster. Not that they're necessarily energetic, but it is, I am trying to, you know, maximize my time. Well, that's good. Yeah. The, when I've been going with the misses, that's good. We, I like that a lot because we're able to catch up on what's going on. It's just her and I on the Peloton. What I generally do is I've been picking the open rides for myself. And then I've done a combination of, if I do a short ride, I'll just put on some very energetic heavy metal and just try and just rock out to it and just keep the the pain going. Um, otherwise, I've done um, I've done listening to podcasts as well, so I've I've done that. Um, but that's a little harder to keep the you know the excitement and the rhythm going. So I'm really going to stick to music. Or once I can build up a little bit of stamina, go back to doing the classes with the instructors. But they really make me work, and it hurts. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I don't I don't know about that. Um, other things going on for me though, is I've been working this week and, um, for a company, uh, based out of the Asia Pacific region. So I've been time shifted. So I've been working evenings, my time, which is mornings, their time, which in general hasn't been that bad other than with all the animals it throws their schedule off. And then it throws off, you know, you're going to bed schedule, which throws off your entire sleeping schedule for the week. So it's been kind of, um, it would be better if I was doing this like I did once before, where for six months I worked for a UK company and I time shifted to, to UK time versus just doing it for a week, doing it for weeks, just enough to kind of really get you off schedule to then try to make it hard to get back on schedule. And the other thing is I'm not, whereas I am doing a great job of closing my rings, I've closed my ring. And when we say, when we say close our rings, we're talking about our Apple watches where it tracks like our movement, our exercise, and the number of hours that we stand. And we have goals that we're trying to hit there. And I've been hitting that every day since January 1st. But where I am starting to fall down is I made a goal for myself to try to read at least one technical or non-technical book every month. And so we're in the middle of the month and I have not started a book yet. So I've got to, I'm going to have to start stepping that goal back up as well. Yeah. My, uh, I haven't even got around to my goal setting yet. It's just mostly a survival of the fittest day by day 
trying to deal with my new job, the fact that everybody's back and being progressively introduced to larger parts of the company that I need to have an involvement in as part of my job, and then still doing all the things I did before, that being home, and then I still have a few previous consultancy stuff to wrap up. In particular, it's January, so that means closing out, for example, the books. Um, and that means I have to do MCW's books, do our personal company's books, and then Julianne, my wife, and I have to deal with our personal finances, you know, our taxes. So January is right now just literally survival of the fittest with my biggest goal, doing the ring so I don't get yelled at and, uh, you know, not getting beat up by the wife and kids. So shall we oh, talk about some news? Yes, but quick note for one of us to remember is that um, topic for the future is to revisit how we do our planning because I have changed how I do my planning for this quarter in this next six months. So and and so far I'm finding it I've gone back to an old system and so far I'm finding that I've missed that old system and I'm so much more organized over the past two weeks than I have been. So show topic for another day. Well, that'd be good because I am exploring a couple new applications to help me as well as styles of workflow. So that would be fun to do. But yes, let's go talk some news. Brian, you want to take us away? Yeah. And, you know, I hate to start with something unpleasant, but I want to get this out there. So a couple days ago, Microsoft issued some patches. And this came to my attention primarily because. I have a couple dev servers I use that run a couple different versions of Windows Server. And in particular, on one of them, I have some drives formatted with REFS. This is Microsoft's resilient file system. Now, one of the reasons I use it is because it's a great file system for Hyper-V hosts. uh, And you can do, one of the features you can enable is deduplication. And it turns out when you install this patch, uh, people were rebooting and finding out that their REFS volumes were gone. Uh, they had went from formatted volumes to what is known in the file system as a raw or unformatted volume. That sounds like a not good thing. Yes, it is a not good thing. There, is there a backup or recovery from it? Or Yes. So I've got a link in the show notes. So the first thing is, uh, the good news is, I discovered this last night, um, Thursday, the 13th of January. Did some research. The good news is as of today, January 14th, the patches have been pulled. And the solution to the patches is to uninstall them and your volumes will return. Um, So I know by the time we publish this, it'll be a few days. But... If you're like me, you don't maybe necessarily update all of your dev environments every day or you know every patch Tuesday. Um, I do not have my servers, my dev servers, set to auto-update. I always want to be prepared for these type of situations. And sure enough, I hate when I'm right for these kind of reasons because you know Microsoft and other vendors will encourage you to have auto-updates on. And I'm sorry, this is an example of getting bit in the tuchus um, by having auto updates on. So I'm glad I did not have it on, on my Hyper-V server. Cause I would have been crying tears of pain because not only do I have REFS volumes storing the VHDs for backups and I have DDoop on, I've also got a, a volume that I'm running them on. 
And so just to have your, your VMs disappear, which could be all sorts of things, would be really frustrating. So that's probably the first thing I wanted to bring up. That is a good thing to get out there. And obviously, from a DevOps perspective, obviously patching is can, can be important to make sure things stay patched, but you've also got to make sure how do you handle, you know, as you just said, being prepared in the on the chance on this when something bad could potentially happen. Yeah, and I think that goes back to we think about, you know, as if you come from a developer perspective, we think about doing updates in waves or, you know, like the Azure DevOps team would do updates in rings and where you mitigate your overall exposure. And so what the way I do this is I do it myself in a lab environment. I do it first on a test environment. So I have test VMs before I update my hosts. And so it's kind of like looking at some of those things. Unfortunately, when you get this the distinction between host environments that have different hardware and different setups, it can be more complex. But yeah, definitely uh, this one is annoying. It also affects domain controllers, causing them to run for a while and then reboot. Uh, so that's not good. Oh. Um, yeah, so this was just a bad one. I've got a link to a third-party uh, bleeping computer. Uh, the good news is Microsoft is starting to get out the information. And as I said, they have pulled them from Windows updates, so it should not be offered uh, for a bit. Okay. Well, good. I'm glad we found that to let our listeners know. Yeah. Now, the next topic, um, thinking about bad things, was I went and turned on a feature on my phone that I'd read about, but for some reason I just was looking at some other setting on my phone and I saw it. So we're going to include a bunch of links in the show notes, but basically this theme is around protecting your digital life and legacy. So there's a couple things going on here that I want to bring up. Number one, the fact is at some point in time, sadly, dear listeners, all of us will die. And because of that, you know, we have to have created a digital, you know, legacy of ourselves online, whether it be, you know, the case of my having an iPhone, I have iCloud. And on iCloud, I have my photos backed up in the photo library. Now, being OCD and the retentive person I have, I have backups three or four times different ways. But the point is, the iPhone is a main way that my family and myself communicate, both with our messages, uh, photos, etc. And so one of the things you can do now is Apple has a service called their digital legacy contact where you can specify one or more people that you want to be able to get into your Apple account and access uh, and turn off activation lock on your devices in case of your passing. And so you basically register it. You get this printout that you got to put away in the safe that has a QR code and a code on it. And then that in conjunction with a death certificate can be used by someone to get access Separately, Apple also introduced something called Apple Account Recovery. Uh, this is something that our fellow friend Ben Day pinged me about, and I forgot that he did set me up, and I never set anybody up on my end. So, Mickey, will you be my friend? Um, but basically, <laughs> you need to you set someone else in case you get locked out or have trouble. So, a couple of really good things there. Now, beyond that, other things you got to think about is, well, what about your password manager? Well, LastPass, for example, has a way to have emergency access. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, 1Password, because the way they do their encryption, they don't support that. And there's a whole digression there that we're not going to have time for today. 
Let us know if you want us to talk more about that stuff, folks. But the fundamental idea here is that with one password, you need to create an emergency kit. So links to that. And if you have an Android phone, I've got a link to Google's information, and Microsoft has the same thing for your live IDs, et cetera. The bottom line is now's a good time of year as we're getting ready to do taxes in uh, the U.S., but you know, New Year, it's time to think about what. How are people going to get access to those important digital assets and information, and how do we protect ourselves from malware, bad actors when it comes to some of those critical aspects? So make sure you use a password manager, and make sure you think about your emergency access to those important things. And, and I can't do anything but you know plus one what you've said. I've actually been in the situation where I've had to try to help friends and family members with hacking into accounts, trying to guess passwords, trying to figure out ways to access things like bank accounts and and other, you know, online presences that they they because the individual didn't had not shared that information um is made it much more difficult. And if you're smart, which hopefully you are and you have multiple passwords or you know separate passwords for everything, Again, we could also have a conversation about the time when Mickey got hacked badly because he did not practice what he preached. Um, then, you know, you've got to have a password manager. You've got to have something like that for managing those passwords. And that's where having somebody who is a backup for, to have access to your account in case of an emergency is a very, very important thing. So that was another thing that came up. And part of this came up also because deal at the end of the year, unfortunately, my mother passed away on November 30th. And having to go through and deal with her stuff, as much as we had asked my mother to give us access to things and, and to plan, she just didn't. She didn't think she was going to leave us this soon. And therefore, my brother and I are now waiting. We can't, like, her car, her car, which she had car payments on, is sitting on my street. And the, I won't mention the manufacturer, but they have called to say, you know, where's the payment? And we're like, uh, we told you that we're going to give the car back. We, she's dead. And they're like, okay, yeah. Then they call us back. When are you going to make the payment? You're like, well, you said you won't take the car back without the death certificate. So, you know, chicken and egg here. So that got me thinking about it. Um, now I have a couple DevOps links. It's, just, you know, there is a lot going on. So the first of the year, we have a lot of good stuff coming. But one of the first things, and these will be in the show notes, is staying in touch. GitHub, for example, we have the GitHub blog. We have the GitHub Twitter accounts. So there's a primary one. And as well as we've uh, opened up a new one for specifically for Brazil this last week. And there's also a YouTube uh, video page that has videos on it. And the GitHub blog I love because you, you've got both regular type of blog posts out there, but it's also got a change log section. So it's got short posts on the new stuff that we've released that day or that week. And so I, it's actually one of the things I reference at least weekly just to try to keep up on what's being um, released. And then the YouTube video channel I absolutely love because there's short videos, there's long videos, there's videos from GitHub Universe out there, lots of good content um, that is still, that's relevant content. So speaking of the blog, then there was a lot of posts this week. Once again, getting back this new year, but the one I thought that I wanted to highlight was how we ship GitHub mobile every week. This is Absolutely. an awesome blog post, right? Uh, it's from engineering, 
lots of great DevOps detail in there, lots of process and how they do stuff. Really a good way to inspire you, particularly when you think about shipping a mobile application. If you're not aware, GitHub has a mobile app both for iOS and Android that you can run on both your phones and your tablets. It's a really great way to stay up on your GitHub projects and open source stuff right from your mobile device. And they're really good apps. And so it's really nice to see what they go through to take uh, an application that is available in-house and then is available through the various test platforms like um, Apple's uh, test case. I forget what it's called. Test flight. Test flight. Thank you. Um, And then how it actually ends up in the store. Uh, So take a look at that one. Uh, do, speaking of the GitHub mobile app, do you use the GitHub mobile app? I actually have found when I am not in front of my computer, but I need to do something GitHub related. It is fabulous. Yes, I've been using it for quite a while. My biggest issue is getting it all in shape for working at GitHub. So I've had it for a long time with my personal GitHub handle. But now I've had to deal with the fact that I have uh, my employee handle and uh, I have employee access. So getting all the security and all that stuff set up, um, I've been working on that. But yes, I find it valuable. Awesome. Now, what's this other post you have in here about uh, making my biceps bigger? Well, Mickey's always working on, you know, how to pump you up. Um, But uh, bicep, (laughs) so bicep is a technology from Microsoft that is an extension or an enhancement to arm templates. Get it? Bicep arm. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, we don't need any sound effects when we got Mickey's voice. Wait, is he looking? He's going to make a noise. I think he's here. No, no, no noise. Okay. Oh, wait, wait. I'm sorry. Here. Uh, Brian made a joke. So, Thank you. There we go. Okay. Um, we're, we're learning, dear listeners. Um, but in either case, uh, bicep files are a different way, uh, are an enhancement around ARM. And this blog post uh, from Microsoft covers using bicep files to help deploy your Azure resources via GitHub Actions. So again, as we like to say, uh, we always want to automate everything and using actions and bicep would be a good way to do that if you're working in the Azure cloud. Okay, good to know. And just to prove that we're not necessarily all GitHub all the time, we've got some Azure DevOps news. Yes. Now, the Azure DevOps, I've got two links here, and they're basically the boring stuff. It's about, A, making sure your servers are patched because there's some Azure DevOps server updates. And finally, uh, as we all could probably ignore in December, there was that great kerfuffle and mess around Log4j. And so listeners, um, some of you may have been concerned or are still concerned or now you're concerned about your Azure DevOps server and whether you need to patch it because there is a component of Azure DevOps server. This is the self-host version that uses Elasticsearch and has Java, et cetera. So the good news is uh, you generally should be pretty good, but read those posts um, to make sure you're completely covered. Now, Brian, do you, what is your IDE of choice right now? I'm still a primary number one visual studio. Now that said, I use code a lot more and Dear listeners, I love me some code spaces, which we'll have an episode on later in the schedule. 
So I'm also mostly a probably a Visual Studio code, but we did install Visual Studio 2022 for the workshop that we did last fall. And that sucker was blazingly fast. I have to admit, it was really, really nice. But we've got a link in our show notes about some new Git features in Visual Studio 2022. Exactly. What um, a lot of you may or may not know is when Microsoft first brought Git to what was at the time TFS and Visual Studio Team Services back in the early 2010s, uh, 2011, I'm 2011, if I remember correctly, they grafted the UI implementation of working with Git and Visual Studio into what was called Team Explorer. And they basically made it a component area of around where you did version control with TFEC. So you basically, depending upon what you're connecting to, you would see different commands and different tiles. One of the big things that occurred in the late 2019 cycles, they started reimagining, hey, if we just thought about Git on its own, regardless of the back end, so think about it, for whether it's for GitHub, whether it's for Azure DevOps, Bitbucket, whatever, how can we make working with Git better? And that's what this post is about. And it talks about some of the new features in 2022. So some of these started out as previews in 2019, and now they continue to make it better. So that if you do use Visual Studio on Windows as your primary IDE of choice, regardless of what your Git backend is, you should get a stellar experience. Another potential show topic now would be Mickey and Brian's Git tips and tricks. Because I have got pulled, as you know, Brian, kicking and screaming into the Git world. But I much prefer to use Git in general, from a command line. I do not like using it in an IDE, and it drives me crazy when I have to try to use it in IDE because I don't find it as intuitive as being able to do it from the command line a lot of times. That's interesting because for a lot of people, they find their initial approach to Git is they can only do it if they use a GUI. So that would be a good topic to cover. There you go. Two show, two new shows coming out of this one. All right. And finally, you got a shout out. Yes, so this is a friend of many of our listeners, I'm sure, and that is Charles Sterling. Charles, uh, I have known now going on about 20 years. In fact, the, the best physical interaction I had with Chuck in the very beginning was we were on holiday up in the, I want to say Great White North, but it'd be the Great Barrier Reef, up on Hamilton Island with Adam Kogan his family, Chuck and his family, and my wife and I. And uh, let's just say there were wetsuits involved and maybe some semblance of three men looking more like orcas than uh, humans. Uh, But Charles, uh, at one point, a.k.a. Chuck, was our community manager and took care of what are known as the Azure DevOps MVPs now, but were the ALM MVPs, the TFS MVPs, and Chuck has retired from Microsoft. Uh, he has a post on Twitter. I've got a link to it where he says he's trading in his blue badge, his Microsoft <laughs> Microsoft badge for his AARP card. So, uh, Chuck, congratulations on retirement. You will be deeply missed, and I hope to visit you down in the Florida Keys sometime. Uh, Chuck is an avid uh uh, oceaner. He loves to fish and loves to be by the ocean. So uh, Chuck, all the best. And my main interactions with 
um, Chuck were through the MVP program back when I was in the MVP program. And he was a great, great contact and asset there. And he's just been a great person in general. There was one time when I was just coming up to Redmond and I wanted to go on campus and do something. And Chuck was like, come on, I'll show you around. I'll get you in where you need to go and just took really good care of me. So Chuck, you will be missed, but enjoy your retirement. And you're close to me, apparently. I didn't realize you'd gotten down in Florida, so I'm going to come come track you down. Really? The Florida Keys are close to Tupelo? Closer than you are out in California. I would wonder, if you and I were to challenge each other, who could get there faster? I suspect I could. Okay, yes, but I get to pick the mode of transportation. No, we're not driving. Yes. I'm talking about I jump on an airplane, I can land in Miami and be in a car and head down or even take a flight into the Keys. But whereas you're going to drive up to – I could drive there at a lot less cost. <laughs> okay. I'm happy that you'll do that, but I'll get there faster and be having a cocktail with Chuck first. Yeah, whatever. We'll see. Chuck, you feel free to challenge us. Well, all right. <laughs> let's do let's 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 you know, let's actually talk some show topic of the week since we do actually have a topic of our show, which is let's get into that topic. Monitoring and application resiliency. Because, Brian, bad things happen to good developers. Applications fail. And sometimes it's not your fault as a developer. The reality is that at some point in time, your app will fail. So, rather than pretend it won't happen, how do you prepare for that? <laughs> you cracked me up with the music choice. Right. So, this, is, this topic came up because it happened to myself and a team I'm uh, continuing to mentor and work with. And the bottom line is this. They are working on a new deployment of their application that is going to be more secure. So the good news is this did not affect their production deployment. So their app is already in production. But then in setting up a new environment in Azure to do some tests, they've done some new configuration, etc. Now, the app runs with Azure App Service, so Microsoft's platform as a service offering, and it uses, it has a website, it has some Azure functions, there's some databases, all sorts of stuff. Well, it was interesting. Team comes back and says, okay, we're back from the holiday. Let's go get back to work on the dev deployments. And someone went to look and said, hey, you know what? It's not running. I can't get to it. Now, one of the things that they had done is they had put um, Azure's application gateway in front of it for more secure access to the app services. So you actually go through the application gateway before you get to the app service. It gives you more control over both ingress as well as egress data. And the long and short of it is that the apps had failed. Now, the details, dear listeners, are not particularly important. What is important is no one knew about this. Now, what they realized is that while they had done some great stuff in configuring their deployment, they have an automated pipeline, they got ARM templates, they didn't configure any of the alerts in Azure Monitor and Application Insights to let them know that the app had, in fact, failed. Oops. So when we think about monitoring and application resiliency, 
you got to start at the top. And really that is the people and process, which means number one, we need to have a blameless culture. And that's, that's really, I mean, I honestly, I think that is a critical thing. We actually have a thing, which it's not just at GitHub, but I've seen it in other places as well. Um, hug ops where you'll send people a message, hug ops when there's, when there's outages or there's other major fires that are being fought. And you've, and you've got to approach it from the standpoint of not trying to find the person to point the finger to, but how do we come together to solve the problem? Exactly. And so, you know, luckily this was a dev deployment, so no one was really upset. It was, it was more about, okay, yes, let's figure out what happened, but also why did none of us know about it till well after the failure? It turns out the failure occurred on New Year's Day. Hmm. Go figure. Um, it, like I said, it turned out there's multiple factors. Um, but you know, if you go back to this notion, okay, well, what if it had been prod? Okay. Now, in that case, if it had been prod, they probably would have found out sooner because a user would have found it. And that's something we're always trying to avoid, right? We want to know as the practitioners and the application builders and the people that run the apps, we want to know before our users do. So we need to have that culture of learning from our mistakes and one way we do that as well is that everybody that's responsible for a product, right? One of the big things we want to do when we think about DevOps is often try to shift that mindset from project to product is that everybody who works on the product has some exposure to being on call, right? Being that frontline experience. And that really will change the way you build things. I 100% agree. You've got to have that growth mindset. It's okay to fail as long as you learn from it. But especially that everyone should be on call at some point. That's what the Azure DevOps team does. I mean, that's what we've been telling people for years. That's how, you know, if you're on a feature team, everyone on that feature team once a week is on call for um, any issues that might come up. Because that's one of the ways that you make sure everyone on the team has skin in the game to make sure, A, we build a good product, and B, we support a good product or support the product in a good way. Exactly. And so we think about all things that go into it. We want to start thinking about, okay, having that culture of respect, always learning, that growth mindset, coming with a process to where the humans are involved, but then how do we get technology to help us out? Well, that gets us into this notion of the larger life cycle of application building and management and DevOps, which is monitoring and observability. Now, I'm going to include a link in the show notes that's actually hosted up on Google, and it's from their Cloud Architecture Center. But it's coming out of the Dora research. So a lot of you over the years have heard Mickey and I talk about this. We've talked about it on the podcast, and a lot of practitioners have talked about how wonderful the research that Dora did. At one point, this was an organization started by Gene Kim, Jez Humble, and Dr. Nicole Forsgren. And it's also where, at the time, Nicole, excuse me, Dr. Nicole, uh, got to make sure, I don't know, should I call her Dr. Forsgren? I, I just worry that I, I want to make sure she gets all the respect she deserves because she's really awesome. So say the whole thing then, Dr. Yeah, Nicole Dr. Forsgren. Nicole Forsgren. Uh, because uh, I don't know her well enough to call her uh, Nicole. By the way, my daughter's name is Nicole, so I'm just going to say that possibly there's some you know good juju there. But in either case, uh, Dora, in their research, defined a couple terms, these terms as follows. Monitoring is tooling or technological solution that allows teams to watch and understand the state of their systems. Monitoring is based on gathering 
predefined sets of metrics or logs. On the other hand, observability is tooling or a technical solution that allows teams to actively debug their system. Observability is based on exploring properties and patterns not defined in advance. So, but don't you have to have monitoring to have observability? Well, there's a debate on that with some of the geeks out there. The way I look at it and the way if you look at, for example, the way Azure handles it and the way we worked on it with this problem is we worked in conjunction with Application Insights, which is a part of the larger Azure Monitor family. And so if you look at the way Azure presents it, Azure Monitor and the various technologies that it covers give you both monitoring and observability. So the fundamental aspect is we think about, you know, we think about in the day, Mickey, when we were doing uh, System Center and we would set up logging and monitoring. It's like, okay, we're going to collect this data. We want to monitor these metrics. The problem is sometimes all those metrics can be fine, except then you get to a point where all of a sudden the metrics stop. Why did the metrics stop? Because the application died. Ah, well, how did it die? Oh, well, then you start figuring out, well, that you observe the data gathered, you look at it, and you see what's going on. Now, again, I'm new to the observability space for sure. In fact, there's uh, uh, a woman named uh, Charity Majors who um, started uh, a company called Honeycomb do- Honeycomb.io. She's also done some writing about uh, database SRE work. And Honeycomb is a company offering software around observability. What you're tending to find from the big cloud players like Microsoft is they have suites of tools that give you kind of both. So as I said, Application Insights, which is part of Azure monitoring. Amazon has CloudWatch. Google has StackDrive, which is part of their, uh, they've renamed it to their cloud and um, what do you call it? Uh, uh, cloud operations suite. Uh, then you have Honeycomb.io. New Relic is someone that's been around for a long time in this space as well. And the bottom line is them together with tools like Splunk. And in the case of Azure, we have Cousteau, aka Application Insights Analytics, right? It's about gathering the data and being able to digest digest the data, getting answers out of it. I guess I'm going to have to to dive into this a little more because I, I grasp, I grok the whole monitoring aspect of it, but I'm not completely grasping how observability is is necessarily different because I don't feel like you can have observability without having gathered all the monitoring stuff. But it seems like when I turn on all this monitoring, I'm kind of defining what I want to observe. Or maybe it could be I'm just getting hung up in semantics. That's, That's part of it. And I think sometimes it's a way to sell a new way of looking at things as well, right? What is old is new and new is old. So let me ask you, Brian. So I've been watching videos on YouTube when I've been doing my exercising about getting people's perspective on what a DevOps engineer does and a day in the life of a DevOps engineer, which is a whole nother topic. We're not going to get into that. But if you're going to be a, quote, DevOps engineer, is having a good understanding of this monitoring and observability, is that one of the, would you consider that a a pillar that a quote DevOps engineer would need to know? Absolutely. Although, don't get me started on the notion of a DevOps engineer or a DevOps team. So that would be 
three shows that have come out of this show. Um, but is it also something that, say, a developer who's trying to get better at understanding DevOps in general, do, de do developers need to really understand this whole monitoring observability thing? Or is that really more on the, the IT pro side of the fence? No, that developers definitely need to do it because this goes back to this notion of what we used to call APM, Application Performance Monitoring, right? The idea is that how do you know your application is performing well? Well, it runs, runs on my machine. It runs in the lab okay, right? We need to be able to gather that data and correlate it back to application behavior, in particular, changes to our application. And in fact, monitoring and observability are key aspects as we, you know, when we think about DevOps and doing smaller micro deployments, if you're doing that, you got to be able to be able to see the subtle changes in your application's behavior. Obviously, there's this drastic stuff when the application falls over. Duh, we screwed up. But it's the more subtle things to where, oh, an operation that used to take, you know, 10 seconds now takes 59 seconds. Well, how are you going to know that? Well, I think this is, is is obviously a great topic. We're just we're just touching the surface here, but we've got a lot of links that we're going to provide people and that they're going to if they want to dive into this more. And obviously, it's probably at some point we're going to come back and dive into this even a little more. Yeah, I thought it was just I had a good use case to bring it up. I'll follow up again on the issue I brought with the customer and their team. But again, you know, dear listeners, what do you use? Do you use the items we talk about here? Have you rolled your own? This is a space that is hot because the faster you can find a problem, the sooner you can fix it. And keeping your application running is the key metric of delivering value. If your users can't use it, there's no value to be gained. Awesome. Well, Brian, it's about time to wrap the show up. So where can people find you? Well, you can find me on my blog, which is blog.brianrandall.com. I'm on Twitter, and that's just Brian Randall. And finally, you can email me at brian.randall at github.com, and you'll find this in the show notes. Mickey, what about you? So you can find me at my website, mickeygousset.com, or on Twitter, where I am Mickey underscore Gousset. You will pry my underscore away from my cold, dead hands. Uh, you're welcome to email me at mickeygousset at github.com. And I'd love it if you go check out my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Mickey Gousset. That's where I post videos. That's, you know, where one of the ways I interact with the community. I'd love it if you'd go out, like, and subscribe. That would be great. Now, I don't think we have any emails from listeners this week, but if you want to find out more about the show, you can at our website, which is devops.fm, or you can send us an email to the show at devops.fm. Well, on that bombshell, thanks for listening, everybody. Be good humans. Bye, everybody. <laughs>